Welcome everybody to Palm Sunday at the table. My name is Matt Moberg. Thrilled that you are here. Are you excited to be here? Yes. Okay, good. How good was that little performance by the children, huh? Yes. Killers in the Bergquist really want to show up the rest of the kids. I love that. I'm glad we're all for one another in this. And Christian, Christian couldn't step aside from one song. You had to have all the singing parts. You guys can shout. It's unbelievable, man. Well, it is good to be here together, despite all of that. You can come closer, Christian. You don't sit so far away. Um, uh, today is Palm Sunday. Today is the beginning of Holy Week. Today is the day we remember uh, Jesus, this marginalized Jew from out in the sticks who decides to head into Jim Crow, Jerusalem, where after a week of being there, he ends up being lynched by an over-militarized government, in this moment of political, spiritual, and religious climactic activity, Jesus. So we're going to stop today, and we're going to ask about this scene right here, about Palm Sunday, about what the point of Palm Sunday was, and what the invitation attached to this day still is. To do so, I want to look at where Palm Sunday is pointing. I want to go to the end of the week where Debbie left off last week. If you have your Bibles... We're going to go to Matthew 27. We're uh, heads up here. It it might be a little, um, I don't want to say nerdy. This might be more luxury than normal. There's so much inside of this day that makes it really one of the most, if not the most important day on our church calendar. We remember who Jesus was and what this insurrectionist move, what this subversive, uh, politically loaded, beautiful move was on Palm Sunday. And so we might go through a lot of material. If you have Adderall with you, now would be the appropriate time to digest it, okay? Pass it down the aisle, get everyone involved. Matthew 27, verses 1, where, where we're going to go. Reads like this. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him and they led him away. And they handed him over to Pilate, the governor. To understand the story of Jesus, you have to understand the story that Jesus is stepping into here. The scene that was present before he arrived. The Jewish leadership, the chief priests and the elders, this is the upper echelon of the Jewish establishment. This is the top 1%. They rest on the top of the totem pole. They call the shots. They are the spiritual and they are the political leaders of Jerusalem. Their main task, at least from a biblical perspective, is that they are responsible with leading the people and keeping the people in line with God's command and thus God's will as instructed to them by Moses. So take that into account right now as you're trying to fill out a picture in your mind as to who these leaders are, what their role was, and what they were doing. Understand that if that is their responsibility, is they're just here to keep the people faithful to God, How does that vibe with all of a sudden they see Jesus and they want him to die? See, we often talk a lot in the church about what Jesus died for, but we rarely talk about what Jesus was killed for. Why would the Jewish leaders who are trying to keep the people faithful to the commands of God, why would they see Jesus and see his message and see what he was all about and say that he needs to be put down? 
Because when we ask, you know, most of us, when we talk about what is the main message, the essence of Jesus, what is it that he brought to, his, to the table, well, most of us, we would orient around some kind of banner that says love wins. Jesus taught us to love our neighbors. Jesus taught us to love God. Bada bing, bada boom. That's true. I don't disagree. But when is the last time you sat in front of Mr. Rogers and walked away from that show going, that guy needs to die? That guy's a problem. Is there something more to Jesus than just this message of ambiguous and abstract love? Is there something with a little more teeth attached to it? And I would argue what I want to propose to you is that part of the clues in understanding what Jesus was here for is understanding what the Jewish leadership was doing next to Pilate in this scene. Who was Pilate? The world was run, as you all know, because you all are well-informed and you're taking advantage of the information age, and I love that about you guys. You understand that in the first century, the world was run by the Romans. Top to bottom, through taxes and tributes, the Romans ran the world, which is actually really remarkable when you consider the fact that it was still thousands of years before planes, trains, and automobiles. How difficult of a task that must have been. This is what every world ruler has to deal with. You understand. You get it. How are you going to rule in places that you do not reside? Julius Caesar could not crack the code. He did not figure it out. His adopted son, Octavian, Caesar Augustus, he started to put some things into place. And so when they would conquer lands, they could look at the people that they had conquered and say, okay, now we have two different ways that we could go about this. Maybe we could you know, operate on the honor system and say, please keep sending us money so we can keep building our army and we'll leave you all alone. Or we can put some Roman leadership from Rome into these places where you're occupying as like a glorified babysitter of sorts, not unlike grandparents in a lot of ways. Pilate was kind of Grandpa, Grandpa Pilate. That was his role. He was appointed by the powers in Rome by Caesar Tiberius, uh, he was appointed by them to keep over all of the region of Judea, Jerusalem being inside of that. The question, though, is how did he actually do that? Yes, through taxes. Yes, through tributes. He stepped on the people. But the real way that he was able to keep the machine functioning so effortlessly was because he didn't have to do anything at all. He made it very profitable for the Jewish leadership, that top 1%, to oppress everybody else. He promised them that they would stay rich and happy as long as everybody else stayed poor and passive. And so the Romans went to the Jewish people in Judea and specifically in Jerusalem, and they invited them to take part in these oppressive practices. Aren't you guys glad that after 2,000 years, we have finally moved far beyond that? right? We're no longer our political leaders taking money from oppressive organizations instead of taking care of oppressed people. Thank God that is behind us. Thank God we have evolved and stretched for, that was 2,000 years ago, and it's been one of the most consistent patterns in human history. This plays out again and again. And so Pilate has this Jewish leadership in Judea that is actually uh, oppressing on behalf of Rome and keeping everybody passive and from doing anything, not raising a voice, not making a sound. They have come to terms with their own oppression, and nobody really seems to be bothered by it. That's how it all works, which means that Pilate doesn't have to lift a finger, which means that Pilate is very rarely, in fact, only one week of the year is he even in Jerusalem. 
Pilate lives out in Caesarea. Pilate has a mansion out in Caesarea. At Pilate's mansion in Caesarea, he has many pools, he has gymnasiums, he has theaters, he has, uh, is right on the sea, and so the ships are always bringing in the finest silk, if you're into that sort of thing. Like, Pilate is living the dream. He has no problems in paradise. He doesn't have to do anything. He can sit on his couch in Caesarea and eat bonbons all day long, and nobody cares, because the whole system is working underneath him, except for one week a year. During this week, during Holy Week, when Passover was approaching. When Passover was approaching, Pilate realized that he's going to have to take control of what's happening, just in case. When Passover was approaching, he had to take matters into his own hands. And now you understand why, correct? What is Passover? Somebody shout it out. What do they celebrate on Passover? What was that? The Exodus. What is the Exodus? Freedom. So you have, historians believe, 200,000 oppressed people who know nothing of freedom gathering in one central location, gathering to tell the story of freedom, gathering to sing songs of freedom, gathering to talk about a God who once heard the cries of the crushed and not the crushers and did something about it. Can you start to imagine how all it would take is one story being taken a little too seriously and things could slip wildly out of control? If you're Pilate, this is not an ideal moment right here. All it would take is one spark inside of a powder keg like that and the whole city would burn down, his mansion would burn down, his security would burn down, his job, his, his whole life may come to an end if he's not actually able to keep the people passive during Passover. He has to make sure that Passover stays in past tense and this doesn't rise up. Because at Passover, when you have this massive party and you're Pilate and you step onto a scene like that, you're going to be crushed with the anxiety of how long are they going to talk about Pharaoh until they connect the dots and realize they're also talking about me. At Passover, all it takes is over drinks for one person to say something about revolution, and while the rest of the room laughs, somebody else shrugs their shoulders and kind of takes them seriously, writes something down, makes a plan, put boots on the ground, starts organizing, and that spark is set, and the powder keg explodes. Passover is politically very dangerous. And so Pilate realizes, though he lives 60 miles away from Jerusalem, he's got to do something about this. And so what Pilate does is he gathers up hundreds of soldiers and they start marching from Caesarea to Jerusalem, 60 miles out. Now, the march is just as much about the journey as it is about the Jerusalem. And I don't mean that in like a like motivational, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> what is that quote that I'm thinking about right now? You know what I'm talking about. It's not about the destination, it's about the journey. That's what people say, right? Yeah, that's not what I'm talking about here. But it kind of is at the same time. It actually is. Go with that. Let's go with that. <laughs> Pilate takes hundreds of soldiers. They are strapped, strapped head to toe in metal, carrying their weapons, and they go through the most prominent peasant towns on their way to Jerusalem. This is called a triumphal imperial procession. We've seen people do it throughout history. George Washington did it in New York after the Revolutionary War. So Pilate, he takes hundreds of soldiers, 
They are walking through the streets of the most prominent peasant villages, all strapped head to toe in war uh, uniforms, in metal, with their shields. And as they are going, they are banging their shields, making loud noises, reminding all the people that while they might be God's children, Rome is still their master. Looking into the eyes of everyone that they pass as they make their way to Jerusalem. As the Roman eagle leads up front. Which, by the way, you remember that time when that one teacher came up to Jesus and said, I want to be a part of your movement. I want to follow you wherever you go. And Jesus turns to him and he says, what did you say? You remember? Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What is an eagle? It's a bird. That's a bird. An eagle is a bird. Foxes were a rabbinical term known for the family of Herod. And so at that moment, this is a tangent, I know, but stay with me, because it gives you an idea of who Jesus was and the counter movement that he was leading to this. Is he's having this exchange with the teacher, and he says these words, and he's saying, the Herods are living fine over here. The birds, the Romans, you should see where they're living out in Caesarea. But I was born on the run. I don't even have a place to lay my head. These are two very different movements, two very different worlds that are happening right here. Pilate is a bird. Pilate is leading that gang of birds. And they are going through an oppressed part of the world, slowly, staring at everyone in their eyes, because all these peasants would be pilgrims soon at Passover. And so Pilate's objective, his hope, his aim is that by the time that they step into the holy city, the moment that they think they're going to start flexing some muscles on behalf of some revolution, they're going to remember Pilate passing through their town. They're going to remember the crosses that they dragged behind in the procession. They're going to remember the might of Rome and the power of the bird that led them through the cities. And then finally, when Pilate would get to Jerusalem, he would pull up in the front gate, which is the main entrance, which is the western part of town. And in cahoots with the Jewish leadership, while he stepped into the city, there would have been thousands of people who were waiting for him, ready to throw up flowers and, and laurels into the air and sing praises. And there would be security on lockdown to make sure nothing got crazy. But there'd be this huge celebratory event as Pilate rode in at the back of the procession on top of his war horse. First day of Passover. This day of Palm Sunday, Pilate, the war hero, comes in from the west into the city. And on the other side of town, there's another man coming in. This one comes in from the east. This one is not making as much noise as Pilate is making in the west. In fact, there are people who are laying palm branches and blankets underneath his feet to mute the crunch of the leaves. This man does not carry a sword like Pilate carries a sword, but he does have spirit. This man comes in, not with powerful soldiers, but with peasant and poor citizens, friends of his, who stood next to him when he said, I'm turning my face towards Jerusalem, and that's where I'm going. That's the context of Palm Sunday right there. While Pilate comes in, with all this military bravado, 
intimidation, Jesus comes in after healing town after town, humbly, bouncing into the city on the borrowed back of a donkey. Then we watch what happens on Palm Sunday when Jesus does come in. He comes in with his disciples who are standing behind him. And they start to shout some things that you really shouldn't be shouting. They yell, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the what? King. At this point in time, the texts all are in agreement here that, that Jesus is coming in from the Mount of Olives. Biblically speaking, the Mount of Olives, if you are standing there as a leader entering into Jerusalem, that is a declaration of war. From Zechariah 9, Zechariah 14, the language speaks of when foreign oppressors are stepping on Jewish throats, wait for the leader who will come from the Mount of Olives to step back, to push back. This is the same thing that happened with King David when he came from the Mount of Olives. People laid down palm branches. That was a thousand plus years before this. And a hundred years before this, there was another man who had the same thing happen to him. His name was Simon Maccabee. Simon Maccabee, 100 years prior to Palm Sunday, he too came in from the Mount of Olives. He too was welcomed with palm branches and blankets. He rode in with a war horse and he liberated his people through a violent Jewish revolt. They pushed the Hellenistic rulers out of the city and they reclaimed Palestine for themselves. Jesus is in that same place. Jesus is coming from that same mountain. And his disciples are shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. When you are standing on the Mount of Olives from this space right here, have you guys, has anybody been to Jerusalem? Okay, a few of you. So you'll remember if you were on the Mount of Olives how you can oversee the city. When Jesus is standing on the Mount of Olives, there is nothing mysterious. The main event, the main attraction inside of the city where everybody is flocking to in that moment is not in the east, but it's out in the west where Pilate is coming in in power, in steel, in loudness, and Jesus can see it all and his disciples shout out, blessed is the king who comes. They're not even talking about the king who already came. Blessed is the one who is still on his way. In a world that runs on lies, in a world that operates on an illusion, remember these words. Remember the people who have the courage to tell the truth, who have the courage to see something and say something, who refuse to make nice with nationalistic myths, who keep walking knowing that in doing so, it might kill them. Remember those who stand up who have this courage to rage against the machine. And then watch out for those who will try to shut them down. In Luke's telling of this story, a Pharisee, which is a name given to one of the ruling elites, one of the teachers, one of the people at the top of the totem pole, he comes outside of the city and meets him on the Mount of Olives, and he tells him to turn it down. It's too loud. It's too, you will, you will be that spark amidst the powder keg. He says, teacher, rebuke your disciples. It's too much. And this is one of my favorite lines in all of scripture. Jesus turns to this teacher. 
And he says, even if these people were quiet, the stones would start to scream. And we don't hear from that Pharisee again, which makes me believe that he was a little shook up. Because now he knows what Jesus was all about. Now he knows why Jesus was here. This man can hear the screaming of the stones. In Habakkuk 2, the prophet there, he has this prophetic writing which says this, Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many people, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out, and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Who were the ones that were building houses by unjust gain at this time? The Pharisees. Who were the ones who had plotted the ruins of many peoples at this time? The Pharisees. And whose homes in Jerusalem had stones that were screaming out at this time? The Pharisees. When Jesus meets a Pharisee on the road, he says, if you do not let these beams, these people who are supporting your homes that you are building on their backs, the ones you are exploiting, the ones that you are oppressing, the ones that you have already taken everything from and you still keep coming back for more, even if you can keep them quiet, your house will scream of the injustice that you have committed. Injustice always screams. And it's maintained by unjust leaders that try to keep it silent. Pope Francis this morning in Vatican City, he was speaking to a crowd after all the marching yesterday, and he said this to the young children in the room. He said, young people, you have it in you to shout. It's up to you to not keep quiet. Even if others keep quiet, if we older people and leaders keep quiet, if the whole world keeps quiet and they lose their joy, I ask you, will you still cry out? It's up to you to shout. Jesus' disciples are there to push back on everything that has been pushing the people down. And the peasants who hear him, who overhear this conversation, who have been in the towns where he's done the healing and done the acts of liberation and has preached these sermons on justice in a more equitable and holistically healthy world, they buy into his message. And they have been anticipating and waiting for him to step into Jerusalem to push back on the Romans and push back on the elite that have been stepping on their throats. Jesus marches on. His disciples continue to shout. But the peasants, the ones who have been waiting for him, they all of a sudden grow quiet. Because this man, this marginalized Jew from the sticks, he's not here to play, play nice, but he's not here to make war either. As he comes closer down the hill, they can see this warrior king who is coming down the Mount of Olives, the war mountain, the declaration of war destination. They notice that while he is riding to the city, he's coming closer. He's not sitting on a war horse like Simon did. He's not sitting on a war horse like King David did. He's not sitting on a war horse like Pilate just did across town. This man is on a donkey. And I know that we lift that up as like Jesus was humble. See that? He didn't even need a first-class wheels. He just was able to coast in in a real low. That's probably, there's probably some truth in that. 
But a donkey is loaded with symbolism, biblically speaking, historically speaking. Kings never rode horses in seasons that didn't have war. In peacetime, they rode donkeys. So Jesus is on this beast of peace. Jesus is on, riding on peace down a hill of war. Jesus is riding in peace, for peace, and for the sake of peace. And as he comes to this spot where I'm sure many of you have been on the Mount of Olives where you can oversee the city, it is a spot historically where uh, pilgrims, when they're coming to Passover or just to come into Jerusalem, pilgrims and warriors and others of that kind would stop at this spot and they would weep uncontrollably because they were overwhelmed by the beauty of the city. They had finally arrived. Jerusalem, the holy city, the place of our dreams, the motherland, there she is. Jesus, he stops and he cries too. But he doesn't cry over the beauty. He cries over the brutality. He doesn't cry over this massive vision that he has of Jerusalem. He cries over the violence that he sees inside of it. He cries over the pain. Luke 19 says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you... Even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. This isn't how the story is supposed to go. This isn't the role that the Messiah is supposed to take. If you're coming down the Mount of Olives, this isn't what you're supposed to do. You're not doing it right, Jesus. You're supposed to beat your sword. You're supposed to hang a body. You're supposed to scream your slogans. You're supposed to pump your chest. You do not fall on your knees and weep because it breaks your heart over what you are seeing. And yet that's what Jesus does. He says, but now it is hidden from your eyes. That word hidden there in Greek is the word crypto, which is where we get our word uh, cryptography. And this word is a biblical trope that speaks for living in denial. Jerusalem, the evidence is all around you, and yet you still act like you cannot see what is happening. Violence is all around you, and yet you still act like there is no issue. People are dying left and right, and you still think the answer is let's just be nicer to each other. Jerusalem, it's hidden from you because you don't want to see it. And Jesus weeps here because as people are gathering, 200,000 people gathering to speak of freedom and liberation and the end of their limitation, Jesus can hear them reaching for their rifles. Jesus can hear from their weaponized revolution standing up. And it breaks his heart. And we know that's, that's what happens because Matthew tells us. Matthew, in his account of Palm Sunday, he quotes from Zechariah 9.9, which is the text that says, uh, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so Jesus, when he takes this according to Matthew, yes, that is one thing he's doing is this messianic, uh, declaration, I'm riding a donkey, can't you see who I am? Remember what Zechariah said, I'm doing it, can you, can you notice that? But there's also something here that, that scholars want us to see that we rarely have the courage to see. 
There is a rhetorical device, the way of the teaching that Jewish writers in particular would do called a remez. Everybody say remez. Remez. Remez was the idea where I'm going to say one part of a, a verse in hopes that in your head you're going to play out the second part. So when I say ice, ice, you say. When I say one, two, three, you say. Four. Okay, let's go over basic math later. <laughs> oh boy. When Matthew quotes from Zechariah, as Matthew is writing this text, maybe 60, 70 years after Jesus' account and after this whole day goes down, Matthew is employing this Hebrew device of remez. He wants them to hear Zechariah 9.9, the donkey, the Messiah, the claimed one who's come finally. But then he wants them to be playing in their heads Zechariah 9.10. Zechariah 9.10 says this, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim. The chariots, that is the symbol of power, is a symbol of war, symbol of violence, symbol of dominance. Ephraim is the symbol of children of God. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That's what Rome said they were doing. Rome said that through Pax Romana, the peace of the sword, the crushing and not the crushed, they were going to extend their reign from sea to sea, the entire world. And here comes Jesus with a completely different message. He has not come to take away Rome's weapons. He's come to take away all of our weapons. He's not come to take away Rome's violence. He's come to take away all of our violence. And he weeps. Because the closer he gets the more you can hear the revolutionaries reaching for their swords and reaching for their weapons and choosing to go down that road of wanting to kill instead of being killed. And he weeps because he has not come to empower his people with weapons, but to expose the weakness of weaponry. Jesus weeps. Then he says, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and circle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will leave not one stone on another because you didn't get it. Which, 40 years after Jesus' death, that's exactly what happens. The city is set on fire. The temple is grinded into dust. Bodies are thrown everywhere. Massive casualties. And Jesus names it here in his way into the city. Understand this. This is what prophets do. This is not... A lot of times when we think about prophets, we think that they, are, are, uh, they, have, they carry around like some crystal ball where they can look into it and all of a sudden they know that at some point, it may be AD 70, Rome's going to come in from there. They're going to take you out, the ramparts, all these different things. That's not what prophets do. Prophets have the wisdom and the intellect to assess the political realities at hand and, and say what the inevitable outcomes of them are. This is a calculated understanding. Jesus is seeing that A plus B is going to equal C. As long as you want to live in denial of it, that doesn't change the math of it. 
If you want to keep reaching for your rifles, please understand that at some point soon, there will be blood. There will be massive amounts of loss. As for me, I will not reach for my rifle. And the same people who are singing his praises on this day, on Palm Sunday, want him dead a few days later. Because they do not believe that weakness is the way. They do not believe that truth is best when it's unprotected and naked. They believe that they need the illusions of security, not recognizing that they are sacrificing that which matters most to them along the way. In Jesus' eyes, the problem with violent revolution is not that it changes too much, but that it just changes too little. It's cyclical. Human nature that Jesus knew so well had taught him that violence leads to lies, just as lies need violence to defend the truth. And so he takes on this naked truth, this vulnerable, disarmed truth, and he enters into the city on the donkey, the beast of peace. And he was lynched for doing the defiant work of love inside of the oppressive engine of empire. Jesus was committed to violence against systems and institutions that were committed to violence against people. And so Jesus submits himself to this road of love, which is the same road that led Gandhi to the Birla House in 48, led King to the balcony in Memphis in 68, and led Romero to the church in 1980 and countless others along the way. Infidelity to the nonviolent way of love, the way that would rather be killed than killed, be seized than do the season. And Jesus ends up dying from our sins and because of our sins. And some to this day argue that he did it for our sins. Argue that by in his death, by surrendering to the violent ways of the world, and then by getting back up out of the grave and onto his feet once more, not only does Jesus rise from death, but he rids us of our violence because he doesn't grab a weapon. He exposes the weakness of weaponry. It could not keep me down. It doesn't work. Again and again, love will find a way to stoop into the shadows of death and lift up those that violence tried to keep down. There's a better way to go about our lives. And so in this age where we have babies being killed in our schools, black bodies being killed in their backyards, presidents and former vice presidents picking fistfights with one another, and nuclear threats all around, Will we have the courage to lay our weapons down? Because it's never been as clear to me as it is right now that while Jesus may not be the king that we want, Jesus is the king that we need. And so let me close with this. There are two ways to enter into a city. You can come in from the west, or you can come in from the east. You can walk behind Pilate with your sword strapped next to your side, or you can come beside Jesus with a towel wrapped around your waist. Because there are two ways to enter into the city. One is the way of violence and control. The other way is of surrender and compassion. One is the way of suffocating others. The other is the way of serving others. There are two ways to enter into a city. There are two ways to enter into your conflicts. There are two ways to enter into your marriage. There are two ways to enter into the problems that you are having with your friends. There are two ways to enter into your pain. 
There are two ways to enter into a city. Which way will you go in?